invite you to turn to John's gospel, the fourth gospel. We're looking at moving past this three days that were the crucial days of the life and ministry of John the Baptist. As we looked at, uh, we finished up, of course, the prologue was verse 1 through 18. And then from there, we see uh, individual days that are marked out in the scripture. The first one, of course, in it brings back the uh, character known as John the Baptist, and he's uh, beginning in verse 19 and following through to verse 28 was the first day that we looked at with John as we saw it as the investigation of the messenger who was the forerunner. He was the forerunner. He was the forerunner that was prophesied in Scripture that would come ahead of Christ and that uh, he would be, bear witness to him. And he survived that investigation and handled it well. And then it says in the text the next day, as we looked at verse uh, 29 through 34 on the next day, where we looked at him declaring who this Messiah is. And so we saw the identification of the Messiah who sent from the Father in, in those verses up to verse 34. And then the next day, the third day, in those crucial three days of John the Baptist, we saw from verse 35 uh, down to verse 42 last week, we saw the inclination of the men who would be followers. And that's an important segue into what now is the fourth day. Because once again in the text, it, it says the next day. And so we're following along here in verse 43 to the end of the chapter. So there's, <clears throat> this is about, excuse me, this is about transitions we finished a transitional book. It took us about three years to go through the book of Acts, a transitional book in its context, the record of leaving Old Testament concepts and seeing the advent of the Christ as he has come and him being the beginning of the church. Uh, this is the missing piece right here that would have uh, preceded that, whereby it's just it's seeing the disciples, as they're called, who would become called as apostles now uh, in this section from verse 43 to 51. And so we're going to take some time looking at that because this is another one of those crucial bridge texts that takes us from the Old Testament to the new John the Baptist, of course, being the. The, the forerunner, and so the last Old Testament prophet, you could say, who shows up to say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Make, your, make the way straight. Make his path straight to your heart. Take, get rid of all of the dead lumber of the dead religion that you've made for yourselves. Prepare your hearts in the sense of don't make him wade through the swamp of your hypocrisies. Prepare your heart in the sense that you don't have him running after you in your wilderness, worldly wilderness wanderings, and all of those things that we looked at in those crucial three days. So John has done his bit, and now we see a word that shows up for the first time, and that's disciples. The disciples, in this case, of course, as we'll read our text in a moment here, are disciples of John the Baptist. But we're seeing another important transition. Now that the Christ is announced, behold, we would say, look, look, there he is. The anticipated one, the one I've been talking to you about. These are John's 
bat, uh, disciples. And so they've been listening to him. He's been preparing the way as he's been talking to them in whatever form. The text doesn't disclose it, <clears throat> but they are his disciples, clearly. Mathetes, so they are learners under him and so on, that they might recognize him when he comes and when he shows up. He shows up in all of his in flesh and blood and all of his glory. And he says, look, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You can imagine what welled up in the hearts of Andrew and the other disciple who uh, we have pretty good reason to believe that it's actually John, the writer of this gospel, who turned then and something very important. They go from following John the Baptist to following Jesus. So this is a transitional time. So we're going to spend this morning on part one of the first disciples. We'll conclude this, Lord willing, next week when we actually start breaking down the text. What I want to use this morning for is to develop and cultivate a clear biblical understanding of what it means to be a disciple. So they're disciples of John the Baptist. Now that changes. And Sometimes the scripture just, I mean, I've always been struck by, for instance, when Jesus was crucified, how it only bore one verse and they crucified him. It's like, it's like all of human history turned on that event and we've got one verse. So we have to be careful to see what are significant transitional moments, especially coming off of the book of Acts. As I said, they were already apostles when we picked up on it with Jesus ascending to the Father and saying, you're now my witnesses in verse 8 of chapter 1. So what happened before then is what we're going to look at. We're going to look at this event right here. So let's read verse 43 through 51, the end of the chapter. The next day, Jesus, so this is the fourth day, if you want to count from the three crucial days of John the Baptist. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let's pray. Father, already these words are, are powerful to us in our hearing. Your, your words have that kind of power, that kind of efficacy to get the attention of our hearts, that we would be ready, be prepared to make a way straight into our hearts, that we would understand such important words. So, Lord, we understand that something important is happening here. 
And so we ask, O Lord, that you help us to grow in our appreciation for this transition that is going on, that we have have a greater appreciation for who we are as those who who know him, as those who claim to follow him. Lord, help us to understand that from your word, as always, Lord, you teach us from your word. I pray for your glory's sake. Amen. So it's John the Baptist's job to point people to Jesus. So it's the mission of the first disciples then to do the same, to follow him and point others to see who Jesus is. That's That's the job. That's the job of us today. For Christians, that is. The job of us is to follow. So this is, picture it as sort of a seamless line of humanity that are following Christ. And so you have John the Baptist pointing and saying, behold, and then now you have Philip turning and saying, we've found the Messiah. That's the job. It's to turn and say, look, here he is. Or look in my life and see something of him is our hope. That's our job. But it's while we follow him. So that's what we're seeing here. So no doubt John the Baptist has been investing himself in these who are his disciples here that turn and follow Jesus. He would ready their hearts, as I said, to be able to recognize who he was. They see him. They recognize him. Well, at the end, we'll finish with some... uh, characteristics, some marks of, of, a, of a true disciple or some are a true follower of Jesus Christ. We'll see what that is, and we're going to mine all of that out from the Scriptures. We'll see what the Lord has to say there. But as one person wrote, it is the mark of a truly great man that he can gently but firmly detach them so that they may go after a greater, end quote. That's John the Baptist. That's his humility, So he doesn't try to possess or hang on to his own constituency. These disciples are mine. You know, I've developed them. I'm going to hang on to them. No, he's ready to say, this is him. This is Jesus. Follow him. Follow him. So it speaks to his humility and the quality of his character. As Martin Luther said, John's theme is not the calling of the apostles into office. So when you're talking about a call and you're talking about following, there's a general call to all people. It goes, it's in complete accord with what John the Baptist announced. Behold the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of how much? How many people? Of the whole world. And so right now, it's a, we would call it a general call that goes out to the entire world. And there's people that are following. These aren't disciples of Jesus per se in terms of them having an office. They will be called to that office and we will see that. We'll look at those texts. Right now, there's intrigue. Right now, it's simply if I'm going to change who my rabbi is and I'm going to follow... Where are you staying? Helps explain the question, doesn't it? Which otherwise seems rather banal or benign even. It's like, where is he staying now? Maybe we can understand and appreciate that. But let's back up a little bit. Now, sometimes preaching, probably most times, it's like cross-stitching. 
the way you get a context that's tightly sewed together and the continuum that we see in all of Scripture is to drop back and see how that goes forward, how that applies to going forward. And that's what we need to do here. So let's back up for a moment and look at 35 through 42. And I'll be referencing this as we go. So the next day, so this was day three in John the Baptist's crucial three days. John was standing with two of his disciples. So these are his disciples. These are his followers. He's their sort of prophet or rabbi, if you will. And he looked at Jesus, this is John the Baptist, as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this. And because, if I can pause for a moment to interject, because they have been a disciple of John the Baptist, they know exactly what they should be looking for. Speaks to our job, doesn't it? They should recognize him when he comes. And they did what? What does the text say? 37, last clause. And they followed him. Simple words and yet profound in terms of their instruction to us. We want to know what that means. If we've had Christ revealed to us, I want to know what it means to follow him because that's the call. That's the general call until we learn more about him and see whether or not We believe. Do we believe? Verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? We talked about the importance of that question, didn't we? What are you actually seeking? Great question. And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? See, they're already looking into possibly attaching themselves, at least for investigative purposes. At least their intrigue has taken them that far. Where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. Well, there's a lot in that statement, isn't there? (laughs) More than just where he's laying his head at night. If you come, you will see. So they came and they saw and he, where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. It's about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus, note how many times you see that, by the way, was Andrew, that's Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother. He heard, look, from John the Baptist, he looked, this is him. I recognize him. That's Jesus, who is the Christ. That's him. You're going to run to the person closest to you, which is his own brother, and say, we have found the Messiah. He's pointing, you see? He's pointing, if you will, saying, look, he's here. In flesh and blood, he's here. Which means Christ. Verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, so you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. In the Greek, it means Peter, Cephas, of course, is Aramaic, but it means the same thing in both, and that is a rock, but more like a stone. And you remember Matthew 18, of course, where he says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood did not reveal to you that I am the Christ, but the Father is who is in heaven. And on this rock, and that word is Petra, instead of Petras. Peter is the rock, the small rock, the stone. Petra is like a massive rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. Not the rock of Peter the man, but the rock of the statement that was revealed to him. That he is the Christ, 
the son of the living God. So that's a massive rock, like the rock of Gibraltar or the massive rock known as Wilson County. Either way you want to look at it, whatever's helpful. It's big. So this could be, this calling here could be sort of, if you will, a prelude to when they're officially formally called by Jesus, when we'll look at those texts. Right now, they've decided to follow him on their own. He didn't call them. They recognized him. He gives time for them to discover. Come and see. Confident that they will see if they have eyes to see. That's why he asks, depends on what you're seeking, right? Very important. So this could be the necessary prelude to what we see in the synoptics when he's calling out to them. It requires, of course, when we look at these calls, the former calls, that they abandon everything. So you have to ask yourself that important question as a prelude. What is it that you're actually seeking? Because it may not be the Christ. It may not be. So he looked at Jesus. This is in Bleppo. I think we talked about this last week. It's a, it's a searching, penetrating look. This isn't just a glance. This is specifically, intentionally locking your eyes on somebody for a moment to see something in particular. So that's the idea there. So the word is disciples. And I mentioned the Greek is mathetes. And so that's what we want to look at. This is in basic terms. It's a learner. It's a pupil. It's, a, it's an apprentice. These words are important. They, they, they were seen as an apprentice, more than just a student. They're an apprentice and an adherent. They literally, you could say, not, not physically, but they attach themselves to the rabbi. They, they attached themselves in terms of they shared a life with him because they didn't want just a body of knowledge taught to them like we might receive in the seminaries or whatever. They wanted to learn how he lived. They, they wanted to imbibe his character. And we'll see how that goes. I like what the Greek expert Zodiades says on this word. More than a mere pupil or learner, it is an adherent who accepts the instruction given to him and makes it his rule of conduct. Jesus had disciples in the sense that they believed and made his teaching the basis of their conduct, end quote. So these are disciples, these are students, truly, who are being instructed on life, on truth, on the faith, on who God is, on who Messiah is, And they literally are attaching themselves to him, which explains that question in verse 38, where are you staying? The disciples of John recognize the Messiah spontaneously attach themselves to what we're seeing here. And then it says, the text says that in verse 37, they followed Jesus. And this is a word I want you to make you aware of too. Akalutheo. This is, this is a very important word. It means to come after or to accompany or to follow. Seems pretty benign at this point. But I want you to listen to sort of a longer explanation. I think this is so rich and helpful from Zodiades on this word where they followed him. Akalutheo. Listen to what he says. The individual calling to follow involved abiding fellowship with him, not only for the sake of learning, 
from a teacher, but also for the sake of the salvation known or looked for, which presented itself in such fellowship. The first thing involved in following Jesus is a cleaving to him in believing trust and obedience. This, those cleaving to him must also follow his leading. Do not grieve the the Holy Spirit of the living Christ, if he in fact dwells in you, because he is the one guiding you so you can follow Christ. So cleaving to him must also follow his leading and act accordingly, accordingly to his example. Hence, constant stress is laid by the Lord Jesus upon the need of self-denial and fellowship of the cross. He's got a number of texts to support these things, which we aren't going to take the time to look at. So I want you to just hear this. Following Jesus thus denotes a fellowship of faith as well as a fellowship of life. This is signing on for life. This is, I'm going to follow him every day for the rest of my life. For he's coming for me. That's his promise to me when he saved my life. I will come for you. And I will take you there by the hand every day. That's how much I love you. So he goes on to say, it's a fellowship of life, sharing in his sufferings, not only inwardly, but outwardly if necessary. And he's got verses for that. Such outward fellowship with Jesus, however, could not continue without a life resembling his and a self-denying sharing of the cross, end quote. So there's a lot here. There's a lot here in this transition. It's important coming from the Gospels into your life of following Christ that you know what that encompasses, that you know how the Scripture defines that. So naturally, we love those who love us, right? We do. But what if the one who loves us says, follow me? Hmm. Now, it's, now I'm going to have to get back to you. Now I have to think for a minute. Follow me. Can you unpack that for me, please? Because I'm not real sure. I will lead you out of this sin-darkened world. Follow me. Follow me. Trust me. That's what faith is. He loves me. He promises to lead me out. But if you want God to lead you out, you must be willing to follow. Right? When? When? Every day. Every day. Is not this a union wherein he indwells us? So is that part-time? Can we compartmentalize that somehow? What is, what is required here of me? I mean, isn't this just wise after all, according to Scripture, to, to examine, to consider? Anybody who's wise will, and we'll look at some of the verses that bear that out. So Jesus says, follow me 20 times in the Gospels, in all four Gospels. And somebody responding that they followed him, that expression, 33 times. So you see him calling 20 times, but another 13 are those who followed anyway. Hmm. That was interesting to me. So what does it mean then to follow me? What, what does it mean? What, what or who is it that draws them? And why are they following? 
Again, back to that question that's just haunting, isn't it? What are you actually seeking? Because there's a lot that's required of you. I've done all the heavy lifting in terms of righteousness. I've, I've paid that price for all of your sins. But you can't dial in. You can't write out the description of what your life looks like. Right? Who's leading? Who's drawing? John twelve twenty six. My sheep, what? Hear my voice. He's the one. And I know them. And they do what? They follow me. So we speak out of the word through which he speaks, and we follow. That's it. That's it. So following Christ, as we look at Scripture, and this is a note for you, following Christ means devoting your whole heart to him and dedicating your entire life to his service. doesn't mean you quit your jobs like they did and walk away from your families and so on. He doesn't need that kind of discipleship anymore. But it does mean that I recognize providentially where he has me working and who my family is, but my life is dedicated to him in those capacities, all of them. He doesn't want some. He wants them all. So how can I serve him? How can I glorify him? Listen to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. The cross is laid on every Christian. It begins with the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man, which is the result of his encounter with Christ. Behold, there he is. You see him. When Christ calls a man, he says, he bids him to come die. There's two deaths involved here. Christ said, mine. Death to the old man, death to the world, severing those attachments. They don't hold anything for me anymore. I don't even have affections for them anymore. That's what I'm seeing is being called for here. I don't give them quarter in my heart. They don't draw any oxygen in my life. This doesn't, again, be careful. This doesn't mean that we all, you know, quit everything and join a monastery and lead an ascetic, ascetic life. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about whatever capacity calling he has you and whoever your family is and all of those things. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him. Sometimes that might be the case. Sometimes conscience is saying, by that indwelling spirit that lives within me, you can't work here anymore. I don't know. I'm trying to think, think of some of the places maybe I could have worked in New York City and really enjoyed it. But if I became a Christian in those days, I'd have to probably say, I can't work here anymore. And it's not just because the people are unpleasant and pagan. Maybe they have you there to witness. That's not what we're talking about. This thing is going to be detrimental to me following Christ. It's going to put cataracts in my spiritual eyes. I can't see him as clearly as I did before. So I start acting more like the people I'm with. Be careful because bad company does what? corrupts your desire to, to live the way Christ has called you to live. There's a transformational efficacy that goes on according to who we draw close to. Choose your friends wisely, we say to our children. Shouldn't we do the same in a spiritual sense? I want to be around godly people. I want to be around brothers and sisters who remind me of the Christ that I love the Christ that I want to follow. 
Thayer's and Strong's just defines this akalutheo, to follow one who precedes, in union with, to walk the same road, make the same sacrifices he did as a man, to endure the same trials and temptations that he did. With his help. Wiest said it implies fellowship, joint participation, side by side, walking with one another, to cleave steadfastly to one, conform wholly to his example. That's W-H-O-L-L-Y. In living and if need be in dying, end quote. Conveys the idea, says another commentator, of following as a disciple who is committed to imitating the one he follows. End quote. There's a simple definition. So it's more than just learning. We don't come to be in just instructed. Yes, we do need to be instructed for the rest of how long? Our lives. We need instruction because it's that that sets the course for me. It's that that makes the way plain for me. My word is a lamp, what? And a light unto your path. He is the true light. And we covered that. There's more Christology in the prologue of John than in many, many other portions of Scripture. We start by looking at what Jesus meant by calling his disciples, so we know what that looks like, when he called them to follow him. So let's see what happened in the synoptics. It's interesting to juxtapose it with what we're looking at here. Because Andrew and his, his um, whoever the other person is, I think it's John. It's interesting to put that alongside that story and see what he does. So let's call it the effectual call of the disciples. First thing I want us to understand from the scriptures is that he calls individuals not crowds. He calls individual souls. He knows you. He knows each individual human being. He knows them. He created them. He knows them better than they know themselves. He goes after individuals. That's what he does. He targets them and he goes after them with two words. What are they? Follow me. You see that with Matthew, for instance, the tax collector here, Matthew 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And what did Matthew do? Well, hang on, i got to pray about this. i think it over. It says that he rose and followed him. So there's obviously something that went on before this with the with the would eventually would become officially disciples. And that's what we're seeing in our text, just to make that clear. They're following him because the forerunner said that's him. And so they're following. Now we have, he came to specific people. He walked right straight up to that tax booth and said, Matthew, follow me. And he stood up. And he followed him. So we we can assume there's some previous understanding in terms of who Jesus is as his claim to be the Christ. We can see that also with the two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter. In Matthew 4, 
This is an interesting portion of text. I want to show you this. Matthew chapter 4, 18 to 22. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw, this is Jesus, two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately. Why did he put that word in there? For our instruction, yeah? Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Otherwise, it just looks like some weird, you know, like they're, they're in a trance. You know, they dropped it and said, no, obviously there's been some exposure to him. That's what happens right after John the Baptist in this transitional time. Now the word is starting to get spread. You need to come and see this man who is the Christ. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately, same word. They left the boat and their father and followed him. Well, we know that with Peter and Andrew, we have the backstory on that. So there must be one also with James and John. We're thinking that since that John is the John who is the human author of this fourth gospel, that he has that same backstory. He's with that group that started following Christ. But they left, he called them. So there's a calling here, a formal calling, an efficacious calling because it's efficacious. How? Because they responded. They got up. And they gave him their lives. They left their work. They left it on the spot. It's time to go. And they went. Even leaving their father. But watch what happens right after that. Something interesting. Now we have something developing in verse 23 to 25 in Matthew 4. The crowds start to follow. The crowds start to follow. So... Is there something that we need to look at there? I think there is. So right after he's calling these individuals by, by name, he knows them personally. He's already, we can assume, done some investment with them as they've sort of probed who he was and learned from him just as a, as a rabbi. But he went through Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Then what happened? And great crowds followed him. Did he call them? Mm -mm. They followed him. So that brought the question to my mind, why? Why did they follow him? We're back to his original question. What are you actually seeking? So, they're following Jesus. Why? And then I thought I'd take a look at the feeding of the 5,000. 
Might be some similar sort of motivations there that are ulterior underlying motivations why they're following Jesus. But let's investigate in John chapter six, verse one to three. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs. When you have the word because that's revealing what the reason why they're following here it is because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Okay, well, then let's think charitably here. Maybe they're thinking, well, if this is, this could be the Messiah then because he's healing. He's healing all of them, right? They're seeing the proof, the verification that this is the Messiah because he's performing miracles and healing people. And, they, and the 5,000 are fed. And then verse 15 of chapter 6 Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him, what? By force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Are they looking for a Messiah because they recognize their sin fallenness and they're begging his forgiveness? I don't think so. They've got something else in mind. How about the triumphal entry? Let's take a look at that briefly here. In John chapter 12, 12 to 3, the next day the large crowd, here we are again with a large crowd, that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Excellent. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, Skip down to verse 17 of John 12, 17 and 18. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why. Now, if it starts with that, you're about to get something golden here. What's the reason? The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign did not the Pharisees request that a sign be given even after all of this healing the feeding of the 5,000 the feeding of the 4,000 pretty much solving all disease and lame people across the board across the countryside The crowd was there because he had done this sign. Let's continue with our charity then. Let's continue to be charitable to say maybe they're like, oh, this must be the Messiah because we heard that he performed that miracle. But folks, this is the same crowd that in John 1840, a few days later, is shouting Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. He's hanging on the cross and he sees them. The same ones laying down the palm fronds and saying, Hosanna. Can human beings be that capricious, that fickle? We see it all the time. Pick up any given news day. Vacillating back and forth. 
vacillating back and forth. Is this one going to be the one who's going to be the kind of Messiah that I'm looking for? I want to make him king. Or I want to go see him because he feeds me well. He feeds everybody. never runs out of food. I want to go because this is this conquering king. That's who it is. He's in the line of David. We get it. We get the prophecy. He's the king. So go conquer. Why? Because we don't want the Roman oppression to impinge on our lifestyles anymore. Where in there is the gospel as motive? Where in there is the brokenness? I need a savior. Who understood what the Messiah was to come for? So could these crowds all have selfish motivations? And if that's true, and we've good reason to believe it is, because I'm just giving you the same progression of thought that I had in the study this week, okay? I'm asking the same questions that were asked of me in the study, and I'm giving you the same things that the Lord, by prayer and supplication, has given from His Word. So if this is true, we have every reason to believe it is, that they had these ulterior motives for wanting to follow Him. Could that happen today? Could there be large crowds that are following Him or claiming to follow Him? who are not examining that all-important question, what is it that you are actually seeking? That should be above the doorway of every church, shouldn't it? Every single church. What is it that you're actually seeking? You're actually, are you seeking something that will accommodate your lifestyle? (laughs) There's a death that was supposed to happen here. He gave his up. I'm supposed to give mine. How do we know for sure who in fact is a true follower of Christ in the way that he defines it? What does it mean to follow him? Let's, let's explore that question. I, I want to know. I want to know. For me. Goodness, do you want to end up in, in Matthew 7? Oh my. Oh my. Wait, who did you say you were? Depart from me. I didn't know you. You dialed up your own Christianity. You made your own way because of your pride and the lust of your flesh. You didn't listen to me. You don't know me. Amathetes clings, follows, imbibes, imitates. Be imitators of God. Ephesians 5 verse 1, right? Be imitators of God. Why? Because then you're following for the right reasons. He had to give up his image in his creatures and he wants it back. I want that back. I want it back because I love you and you don't know what the best life now is for you. I do. And I want you in glory with me forever. And I don't want you doing it your way. Now listen to me. I know this has to penetrate the pride which is formidable in us, isn't it? But listen to me. Follow me. Follow me. So what does it mean to follow him? Well, it reminded me of the three that said, hey, we want to follow you. You remember that passage? They they want to follow him, but according to their personal desires and expectations. 
Here's what I imagine Christianity to be. And yeah, I want to follow. This is cool. Luke 9, 57 to 62. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Who does that sound like, by the way? What other biblical character? Who? Peter. He said, this, he said some word similar in Luke twenty two thirty three. Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. How far did he get before the wheels came off the wagon? Not very far. Not very far. Fifth, verse 58, and Jesus said to him, foxes have... Notice how he's given them the hard reality right up front. I tried to give that reality right up front to a brother that I love, and he decided to come be part of our church anyway. <laughs> You're sick. Didn't I make it give you some hard realities? Well, you know, we went through this. You know how big the church is. You know this, this. I couldn't talk him out of it. Here he is. Him and his lovely wife all the way from Louisiana. Go figure. I don't know. Christ brought them in. I want them back. And here's where I want them to do that. So he gives them the reality right up front. There's no virtue in withholding truth that is important for somebody to know. And he gives it to them. Foxes have holes and birds uh, have, of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Still want to come? I'm homeless. <laughs> Verse 59, to another he said, follow me. So now he's calling somebody to follow him. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. His father didn't die. There was just has to do with getting his inheritance. He wants to go until his father does die so he can get his inheritance. So what's most important to him? He's got Jesus, the Christ, saying, follow me. I'll be right back. Just let me do this little thing for a while, and then I'll come back. For you know not the day and the hour when your soul will be required, O oh man. Verse 60, and Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Go ahead, go. But make sure you proclaim what you've saw, seen and learned. Oh yeah, and I'll, I'll be back too. You, I'll be back. I just, you know, it's my dad. Okay. Remember, my little phrase to help myself is, people actually do what's most important to them. Oh, you know, I meant to, we should stop saying that. You're going to do what's most important to you. Let's be realistic like John the Baptist. Verse 61, yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first, <laughs> let me... <laughs> as soon as somebody says that, it's like, ah, never mind. <laughs> I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at home. You know, I got to say goodbye. I, where are you going to be? I'll be right back. <laughs> I'm right behind you. Okay, you're going to be, uh, what, in Bethsaida? A couple days, I'm going to be there. Where you know not, oh man, the day or the hour that your soul will be required. 
Verse 62, And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom. Okay. I was an ancient poet in about 800 B.C. named Hesiod who said this, You can't plow a straight furrow when looking backward. That's true. I come from a line of farmers, and that's true. You can't plow a straight furrow by looking behind you. It's going to do this. You can't plow a straight furrow when you're looking down at your immediate situation either. You're going to do this. You have to have that that is out that precedes you, that which is out front of you, that you fix your eyes on and you don't, you don't take them off. And that thing will be as straight as an arrow. You'll turn the tractor around and look and it'll be just as straight as an arrow because your eyes were fixed on the object. That's the point. So I've got three self-serving reasons that we can look at. These are three self-serving reasons to follow Jesus. The first is just for a sense of belonging. That's a social club, friends. I want to be part of that social group. It's cool. It's fun. I feel great. I feel wonderful when I leave. I can't explain why, but, you know, the music was awesome and there's just so many people and everybody just loves Jesus. I'm not knocking anything in particular. Don't misunderstand. But if that's your only reason for going is that you really feel like you belong to this particular group, some particular group. That's not the right reason. Or number two, personal gain. Like financial gain, material gain, positional gain. gain. Or you just want the fire insurance. I just don't want to go to hell, so I'm just going to sign on, but I'll live the way that I want. I don't know about following him. I'll be there on Sunday, maybe. Most of the time. I'll be right with you, Jesus. Three, or for wonder and excitement. A whim, a lark, drawn by popularity. Everybody goes here. This is popular. This is good. And I feel good about things here. Luke 14, 25 to 30, Jesus really lays it out. Now great crowds, here we go again, accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, Now he's going to straighten something out. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, imagine you're there hearing this. What? And wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, what? Cannot be to my disciple. Now, hate isn't the way we use the word. as some capricious uh, contempt. He just means love much less than you love me. Because the enemy will use those relationships that supersede your relationship with me to interfere with following me. Don't you see? 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. We all have a life that includes some necessary suffering, trials, and afflictions. And we don't bail on our Christianity. We won't bail on our following Christ because life got hard. We entrust ourselves to a God who loves us. Verse 28, for which of you desiring to build a tower? So this is him saying, this is him about to say, 
Why would you do something this important without taking full consideration of what the cost is? So we could refer to this as the high cost of discipleship. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with his 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? That's worth considering, isn't it? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. This, friends, is total capitulation. This is surrender to the enemy. You know, someone who tinkers with, I'm a Christian and follow Christ, but falls in these other categories that we've been looking at, when they finally just bail on it because it's too hard. This is too difficult. It's a difficult life, is it not? How many friends do you have? Yeah. Any family members that really don't really need to be talking to you? <laughs> so you know what you believe? There's a, there's a price. There's, there's a cost to this. That's, that's the whole point that he's making. And we have to consider this whole business of him requiring our lives. Uh, the whole heart devoted, the whole life dedicated. So, therefore, here's the conclusion of verse 33. Any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You Now, it doesn't mean everybody gets rid of everything and quits the job, like I said before, and leaves their family. That's not what he means here. What he means is in your heart, they, everything else, everything in my life, my spouse that I love dearly, children, whoever it is, mom, dad, this job, whatever, this gig, whatever's going on that you really love, the, in my heart, I would give them up in a second if he required it of me. He's looking at what? Your heart. What does he want? Your heart. How much of it? All of it. So we have to think carefully about this business of really following him. Matthew 19, 20 to 22, the rich young ruler, remember his story? Told Jesus he wanted to follow him. Verse 20, the young man said to him, all these I have kept. I've kept, kept the whole law is what he's trying to tell Jesus. What do I lack? So there you go. I was a perfect model citizen. I'm a moral guy. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. He knew he wasn't going to be following him. He turned around and he walked away. Rode off. One of the accounts, one of the Gospels says that Jesus was very, very sad about that because he loved him. He's not happy that people walk away. He's not satisfied that they would perish, but that all would come to life in Christ. says in verse 22 to 23 in that account in Matthew 19, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Oh, oh so that's what it's all about. You see? 
what is it that you are actually truly seeking? He had great possessions. Jesus knew that. That's why he made that the litmus test. Great. Give all of your stuff away to the poor. He doesn't say that to all of them. But in your heart, you're ready to renounce anything that he calls you to. Come and follow me. Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 25, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. I would say so. We should be too. Saying, who then can be saved? Who can be saved? After he gave that whole talk in the whole bread of life section, chapter 6 of John's gospel. Whoever, doesn't, whoever isn't ready to eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's why in the first century they accused the people of the way, as they called it, Christians, of being cannibals. Even though that's symbolic. But they give, he gives that whole, you have no part of me. You have no part of me if you don't partake of me. You don't partake of me. And so... In verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Mm -hmm. Who can listen to any message that's expounded from the pulpit where Jesus is putting upon all of us requirements? We love grace. Is he not calling us to a particular life? I think he is. Verse 66 to 69 in John 6. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. It says many, many. So Jesus said to the 12, that's all he's got left. Do you want to go away as well? How he must be broken in his heart. These crowds that we've been talking about turn and walk away. I'm not having any of this. Simon Peter answered him again with the right answer. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed. We've believed what you've said and have now come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The Father revealed that to me in that Matthew 16 passage. But now we see it for ourselves. Of course we're going to follow you. There's no other way. There's no other way. Because there is no other name under heaven whereby man may be what? Yes, Acts 4.12. There's no other name that's been given except that of Christ. But this is the life. This is, this is what you must be ready to say. He can have my life, all of it. Luke thirteen twenty two to 24, as we wind this up this morning, he went on his way through small towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Great question. And he said to them, strive, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. This is a similar thing. 
The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life in the Matthew 7 passage. Many are called, few are chosen. Matthew 12, four, Matthew 22, 14. J.C. Ryle said something that's jarring. The saddest road to hell is the one that runs under the pulpit, past the Bible, and through the middle of warnings and invitations, end quote. So that when we stand before him, we will be without excuse. You've heard my word. You've heard the calling. You know what it required, all of you. And you would not. You would not have me. You loved yourself more than you loved me. And now you have you, but not me. Scary. You know, if these writings weren't true in the scriptures, they wouldn't last two days. Certainly not two millennia. These things are true. They're true. Time and truth walk hand in hand. The truth wins out. That's our hope in these troubling times, isn't it? These truths that about Jesus and the gospel are eternal. So they're, they outlast time itself. They don't change. Very briefly, I've got ten marks of a true disciple or follower of Jesus Christ. And this is kind of in order as well. It doesn't have to be strictly in this order, but I tried to keep it. As we've seen so far in this first chapter of John, as it's been revealed with these other texts where we see the formal calling of his disciples, they hear his voice. They recognize who he is. They acknowledge their need. I recognize he's Messiah and that's the one I need because of my sin. I need forgiveness. I need reconciliation with the God to whom I will answer. For they believe in who he is. Lord, we believe like Peter just said. We, 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 we believe in who you are. Where else can we go? We can't, there's nowhere else to go. And then that's, and he's the one that preaches there is no other name under heaven, right? In Acts 4. That's Peter standing before the Sanhedrin. There isn't any other name whereby man can be saved than Jesus Christ. He knew well, didn't he? But five, they're going to follow him then. For how long? If he's leading me somewhere, this is simple math for me anyway, if he's leading me somewhere, which is heaven, I need to what? Follow him. And not grow attachments for other things that were slowed, slowed down that process or otherwise become a hindrance and obstruction or sideline me altogether. Six, they cling to him. This is devotional. This is love. We cling to him. Seven, they learn from him. How long do we do that? Our lives. Eight, they imitate him. Imitate. We look at life the way he does. We see how he describes things. We take on his 
perception of things, his perspective. We let our worldview be formed out of what he reveals from the universal mind of his. And we've been given the mind of Christ, Scripture says. So we're imitating that, and they love him. Number nine. If the one you love is love is promised to keep you and save you, you're going to follow that one. And ten, they will proclaim him. You can't keep it inside. If he's inside, and you're following him, and you're seeking him daily, and if you aren't, You shouldn't wonder why you're not proclaiming him like you should. And you should ask yourself the questions that all of us should ask. Do I in fact know him? Am I actually a follower of his? Do I cling to him? Do I look to him daily? Is this an intimate communal life that I've got with my Messiah? There he is. There he is. What will you do with him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your willingness to be patient with us and, and call us back when we, we start drifting off and get attached to things in this life, in this world, when you've called us and said, follow me. So, Lord, thank you. Thank you. I pray, Lord, for any out there whose heart you're working in, who suspects that there's things that I need to look at in my life, or I, either that or I need to drop the name Christian. May they have enough integrity to do that. But Lord, lead them. Reveal yourself again to them afresh. They find you winsome and attractive. The life that you offer is something that we all want, but we all need. We know it'll be a challenge. It was for you, and you willingly took it. And we're grateful, forever grateful for that. Bless us now as we go from this place. In Christ's name, amen.